Luke chapter number 20. Now I'm going to back up two verses and begin reading in verse number 47 of chapter 19. And so chapter 19, verse 47, and we'll read down through chapter 20, verse 8. The Bible says, and of course this is the, uh, the last week of Jesus' life as he's spending that in Jerusalem area. And he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple, and I love the next four words, and preached the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? But if, if we say, of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. As is obvious to you, we are returning to the Gospel of Luke uh, this morning, uh, to our study of the life of Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus Christ, uh, through the experiences of his life, and uh, we are looking at the first few verses of chapter number 20 this morning. When you get your worksheet, there's a, uh, a question at the top of it. The question is, who has the right to tell me what to do? Who has the right to tell you what to do? And... When you understand the appropriate authority behind the instruction, do you do what you're instructed to do? This is a phenomenal passage of Scripture that underlies one of the most basic realities of our lives. And that is, does the Creator have the right to tell His creation what to do. And if he does have that right, how does his creation respond to his instruction? That's a huge question, and it has all sorts of baggage in today's world. No one's going to tell me what to do. You have no right to tell me what to do. And this kind of, this idea of, of authority is huge. It's a, it's a huge question. And, um, and it's right at the heart 
of a discussion Jesus Christ has on Tuesday of the week of his crucifixion. I want us to uh, to consider the the truth today, the kind of the bluff, the bottom line up front of the message today is that Jesus does have the right to instruct me. He created me. He owns me. He has the right to instruct me. But not everyone understands that right or relates wisely to that right. And that right came into crystal clear focus on this day of Jesus Christ's final week of ministry. Well, before we jump right into the message, just a, a, a short word of history and geography. Uh, we are in the week of Jesus Christ's passion. Jesus Christ has come to the end of his ministry. He had come uh, from this area over here, or if it was a bigger map. He had come down the Jordan River Valley, and he had come to Jericho, crossed the Jordan River. And he came up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he stopped two miles from Jerusalem at the village of Bethany. This is the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, his dear friends. And Jesus Christ stopped and spent some time with the family of his friends there in Bethany. He spent the Sabbath day there. And, uh, and then on Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday, and in our outline, and, and let me just say that there, uh, the, the outline, the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so forth, uh, is, is a debated topic. The Bible isn't crystal clear exactly what happened on which day. Uh, what I have arranged is, a, is one view, one belief as to what happened each day. And the value, the importance of the events are not to know that it had to happen on this day, but rather the, the outline gives us a structure in which, on which to arrange the events and help us to better grasp the flow of what happened this week. So whether it's exactly the way that it is outlined is, is a debatable matter amongst Bible scholars, but according to the, to the material that we have been uh, sharing with you, uh, we call Sunday, Palm Sunday, the day of demonstration. Jesus left Bethany on Sunday, the day of demonstration, and walking the two-mile uh, trip over to Jerusalem, where he will come to the temple. When they got to Bethpage, uh, he sent his disciples ahead, and they got the little colt and brought it out to him. And Jesus Christ rode from Bethpage. Uh, on the colt, he crested the Mount of Olives. When he crested the Mount of Olives, they're lying across the Kidron Valley in front of him. And they were elevated a little bit above the temple platform. So they're looking down onto the city of Jerusalem and the temple platform, just like you would do if you went to Israel today and went to the Mount of Olives and looked across the Kidron Valley and looked down upon the temple platform. And there were tens of thousands of people there. It was Passover season. There were people from all over Israel and even beyond that had crowded into Jerusalem for the Passover festivities. So as Jesus Christ crests the Mount of Olives 
and all of that is lying out in front of him. The people are lying their garments in front of the little donkey for it to walk on. They're dropping uh, palm branches in front of him. They're claiming that he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah is here. And Jesus began to weep. He began to weep because he knew what was coming later that week and culminating in 70 A.D. when Titus's armies would destroy the city that lay in front of him. Well, Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley, back up the other side, went in the Golden Gate and came onto the temple platform and looked around. This was the Passover season. The temple platform was a bazaar. It was the bazaar of Annas. There were there were people buying and selling merchandise. It was a crowded, busy, noisy county fair, if you please. And Jesus Christ walks around and observes it and then leaves. And, and Sunday, he walked back down across the Kidron Valley, went back to Bethany and spent the night Sunday night. Monday morning, on the day of his authority, he made the two-mile walk into Jerusalem. He went into the temple platform area, and Jesus Christ cleaned house. It was a physical, hard-to-believe, shocking, astonishing display of power as Jesus Christ turned over tables, drove out money changers, drove the animals out of their pens, demanded that those that were involved in all of that get off his platform and said, you have made my house. He took ownership. It was his house. You have made my house a place for thievery, a den of robbers, he said. It was an astonishing, shocking display. Jesus Christ had come to be a warrior who would, or a king who would be crucified. And much of Israel was looking for a king who would be a warrior to politically release them from the power of Rome. Jesus had a totally different plan. And so at the end of that day of authority, Jesus Christ went back to Bethany to spend Monday night. No doubt the leaders in of the temple area, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the uh, Pharisees, all those involved in religious leadership were, were really upset. Jesus had come on their turf and claimed it was his turf. And Jesus had driven out their money-making schemes by which they were all becoming rich as religious leaders of an apostate Judaism. And they were mad at what Jesus did. And the last couple of verses of, verse of chapter 19 indicated that, that as Jesus was daily in the temple this week, they are trying to kill him. They want to kill Jesus. It's interesting that because the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sanhedrin and all the different groups didn't get along with each other. They didn't agree with each other. They didn't get along with each other. They fought with each other. But all of them had one thing in common. 
They hated Jesus. And you can get enemies to join together if you can get them to join together to fight a common enemy. And Jesus was their common enemy. And so they met together and they connived together and strategized together how they would kill Jesus. So we have a quite an interesting contrast unfolding this week on the temple platform. The Bible says in those last two verses of chapter 19 that the religious leaders want to destroy Jesus, but yet the people are very attentive to hear him. And verse 1 of chapter 20 says that on one of those days that as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. So there's the, there's the people that are hanging on his every word that want to hear the good news that he's teaching and preaching. And yet there are religious leaders that are hanging on every word to try to trip him up and find an excuse to kill him. So we have a contrast between apostate religious leaders and the common people. Between wanting to destroy Jesus and enthralled with what Jesus is teaching as he preaches the gospel to them. And this created quite a contrast there on the temple platform. So, on Tuesday morning, Jesus Christ comes into the temple platform. And when he gets on the temple platform, we're going to find this day, which was a long day. The Bible has a lot of things to say about different things that happened that day. But on this day, there's a time of great conflict that Jesus Christ has on the temple platform. And the contrast is mostly focused on the religious leaders that were attacking him. And so that's what is lying in front of us. I want us to, uh, to look at this passage of Scripture and examine a couple of cliches, a couple of cliches that kind of grab my attention as I have read and studied this passage of God's Word. And the first cliche is, who's the boss? Who's the boss around here? And, and that question is the, the foundation of what the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus about. They're licking their wounds from what happened on Monday. They lost clout on Monday. They lost property value on Monday. They lost resources on Monday. Their entire life is called into question on Monday. And now they're ready to take it all back. They want their turf back again. And so when Jesus comes onto the temple platform on Tuesday morning, they're there to meet him. They're ready. They have met. They've strategized. They know what their line of, of questioning or arguments are going to be. And so the, they, they face Jesus. Verse number one and verse number two tells us that the chief priests, the scribes came upon with the elders, came upon him and, and they said, tell us, verse number two, by what authority doest thou these things, and who is it that gave thee this authority? And you'll notice there's two issues here that they have with Jesus. They, they want to know why Jesus thinks he has the authority to do what he did on Monday. What authority? By what authority doest thou these things? What gave you the right to do what you did yesterday? What right, what authority did you have to come in and do what you did? And then the follow-up question was, 
And if you think you have the right to do that, who gave you that right? We're the ones in charge of the temple platform. Who gave you the authority to do what you did if you think you have the authority to do what you did? Or who is the boss? Now, these are not new issues. And, and, and I want you to understand that if you just open up your Bible to the events of this week and read how Jesus interacted with the apostate religious leaders, you could walk away thinking, boy, Jesus Christ got a chip on his shoulder. He's kind of rude. Who does he think he is to do what he did? If you just took this and didn't read the 19 chapters that came before it in Luke, you could get the idea that Jesus is out of line and not treating people very nicely. What you've got to understand that the issues and questions that he is confronted with by the religious leaders are not new issues. Jesus has dealt with these same people over this same issue over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, the word authority is used 25 times in the Gospels. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, that the end of his Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. He was so different than the religious leaders they had grown up under. He, he seemed to have the authority to teach what he taught. And the scribes hated him for that. Jesus Christ, on another occasion in Luke chapter 6, confronted people that he had taught. He had given truth, the Creator, giving his creation instruction on what to do. Is he the boss? Does the Creator have the authority to tell his creation what to do? Well, a lot of people didn't think so. So Jesus, one day in Luke 6, looked at them and said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, know the word Lord means master. Why do you call me your master and you do not the things that I say? That's a bit of a conundrum. Jesus, Lord and master. And then he tells me what to do and I say, ah, I don't think so. How does that work? And that's what they were doing, some of them, and Jesus called them on that. You see, this thing of authority was something that Jesus had dealt with for three years with the people of Israel. Now, there are two words that come into play. There's the word power, or sometimes translated um, by a variety of words, sometimes translated authority. It's the word that if you saw it spelled out in the Greek language, it, was, it would look like you're writing out the word dynamite. Because our word dynamite comes from that Greek word. And it means an explosive power or strength or the ability to do something and make it happen. Power. Dynamite. That word is used 120 times in the New Testament, sometimes translated power, miracles, might, strength. These are different English words used to translate the word for, for Jesus' explosive ability to do anything he wants to do. Power. There's another word, and it's the word used in our text. It's the word, it, it's a totally different word, and it means the right to do something. 
the right to do something. Do you understand the right to do something and the power to do it are two different things? You may have the right to do something, but not have the physical strength capable of doing it. You've got the authority, but you don't have the power. And we know God is the creator, has both authority and power. But they're not questioning his ability. They saw his ability yesterday. They were the brunt of his ability yesterday. They saw what God can do physically on the temple platform, his dunamis, his dynamite, his power, his, his strength, as one man cleaned house on Monday. They weren't questioning his ability to do it. No, they were questioning his right to do it. Who do you think you are to take our turf and call it yours? Or in other words... Who is the boss around here? Who is the boss around here? That's a big issue, a big question. What right do you have to do what you do? And if you think you had the right, who gave you that right? You understand that authority is a big issue in life. Really, it it is at the foundational level of the gospel. A lot of unsafe people don't believe God has the right to tell them what to do. So, therefore, there is no sin. If God doesn't have the right to tell his creation what to do, then there's no accountability for not doing what he tells the creation not to do. Authority is at the basis of the gospel. And they're questioning whether Jesus Christ has the right to tell them what to do. Huge issue in life. Who has the right or the authority to tell you what to do in any sphere of life in which you operate? And if they have the authority, why do they have that authority? Where did they get that authority? Where did it come from? Who gave it to them? Do I submit to authority regardless of what I want? Well, if I understand they have the right to tell me that, then I have the responsibility to do what they tell me to do. And so we find Jesus dealing with this principle over and over and over again. One of the places where it came came crystal clear is Jesus' authority to forgive sin. There were uh, five verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, five different places where Jesus Christ forgave somebody of their sin. And the scribes and Pharisees, the ones that Jesus is in controversy and conflict with on the temple platform in our text, five times that same group of people challenged Jesus' right to forgive a person of their sins. And they asked, by what power? It's translated the word English word power. It's the same word translated authority in our text. By what authority? Who gave Jesus the right to forgive someone of their sins? Well, we know the answer to that. You know, Jesus is God. He has the authority to forgive people of their sins. He exercised that authority. And 
So now Jesus Christ is in front of that same group of people. He has ridden into Jerusalem before tens of thousands of cheering people. Our Messiah, the Son of David, is here. Jesus does not calm their enthusiasm. Jesus does not deny their claims. He takes control of the temple, calls it his. The religious leaders are upset. They are chafing under the authority of God to tell them what to do. In a few few weeks, Jesus Christ is going to gather his disciples up on the Mount of Olives before he goes back to heaven. And he's going to use this same word. He's going to say, all authority is given unto me. All power. It's the word word translated authority in our text. Not the ability. The emphasis is on the right. I have the right to do anything in heaven and on earth. And since I have the right to do anything, I'm telling you, go. Tell the world about my gospel. You see, Jesus has the authority to do anything he chooses and wants to do. And people have a hard time with that authority. And it's when the Spirit of God begins to convict an unsaved person's heart and they realize they're guilty of rejecting the right of God to tell them how to live. The right for God to say what is moral and what is immoral. The right for God to define what is good and what is bad. And it's only when the Spirit of God begins to convict the heart that causes a person to realize, I have rebelled against the right of my Creator to control me. And I'm going to have to stand before Him one day. And I'm in trouble. And then our heart is soft to the amazing story that Pastor Ryan just sang about when we see Jesus on the cross and understand love, God's love, maybe for the very first time. And we invite Him to come into our life and to save us from our sin. You see, these people that Jesus is in conflict with Refused to come to that point over and over and over again. Jesus Christ dealt with them. And over and over and over again, they rejected. So, when you look at how Jesus is interacting with them, you may think it's kind of sharp. It's kind of strong. But if you think that, it's because you don't know the backstory. You don't know how he's loved these people. And how he's reached out to these people. And how he's tried to help these people understand he has the right because he's God. And when they fail to do what he tells them to do, they are in a position of danger for all of eternity. And it was only after repeated, repeated, repeated rejection of his love that he interacts with them with the sharpness. He interacted with them in this last week of his life. And you can read different places. I mean, if you want to read a, whew, you want to read a, you know, read some of, some of Jesus' sermons to this group of people at the end of his ministry. You talk about harsh. You talk about sharp. But they're people 
who have repeatedly rejected his love, who now he's dealing with in a stronger way. Who's the boss? That's an important question in life. Who's the boss? The boss is Jesus Christ. He has the right to tell me anything he wants to tell me. And his right carries with it and a responsibility placed on me. Because when I know what he tells me to do, because he has the right to tell me, I have a responsibility to do what he tells me to do. Let me show you a second cliche. Second cliche is this. The proof is in the pudding. Well, you could guess that. That's a pretty easy one, isn't it? The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. What you do reveals what you really think. You can tell me what you think, but I'll watch your actions and I'll know what you really think. The proof is in the pudding. It's in the actions taken that we have the revelation of the reality of the heart. Jesus' answer here, as he answers these these religious leaders, is full of light and wisdom. He's, He's using a technique, a teaching technique, called catechism. The word catechism means teaching by asking questions. It's a, it's a form of education. It's a technique in educating. Jesus Christ used it continually. It was probably the most prevalent technique of teaching that was used by the religious leaders of Israel. They, they taught by asking questions. The questions they asked were questions intended to not require a yes or no response, but rather reason and thinking and deliberating and explaining. And the process of an individual thinking through something to the point where they can explain it is a tremendous teaching technique. And so Jesus Christ employs that. By the way, the technique of catechism is a powerful technique in educating and that's why we prepared, produced years ago, I wrote CBC's Articles of Faith Catechism, a question and answer tool for dads and moms to use in passing their faith to their children. It goes through our church's doctrinal statement, point by point, and it turns the doctrinal statement into a list of questions and answers that a parent can use in their family devotions to pass their faith to their children, teach their children truth, By asking them questions and helping them to learn how to think about that question and answer it from the perspective of the Word of God. That's what Jesus is doing here. We see in verse number 3, He answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to answer your question point blank, but rather I'm going to ask you a question. If you can answer this question, this will shed light on the answer to the question you've asked. In other words, Jesus' question is related in subject matter to the chief priest's question. Their questions were, what right do you have to do what you've done? And who gave you that right? And Jesus said, well, rather than giving you a simple answer, I want to ask you a question. Here's my question. And by the way, Jesus' question is not going to point to what they say. Jesus' question is going to point to what they did. 
Because actions reveal belief. What I do reveals what I really think and really believe in my heart. And so Jesus' question is going to require them to consider what they have done. I'll ask you a question. Here's my question. Verse number four. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? Who gave John the authority to baptize? The right to baptize? Did John have the right to baptize? Did, did, did just some human being give John the right to baptize? Was it from men? Did, was this something that John conjured up? A, a neat little thing he could do to kind of solidify the people that listened to his sermons? Or did God give John the right to baptize? You see, the question is about something that is totally unrelated. This isn't a new converts class on the meaning and importance of baptism. This is a group of apostate religious leaders asking about authority. Jesus used the subject of baptism because it was the perfect subject to confront them with the question, where is the authority in baptism? You see, John had been sent by God. When you study the life and ministry of John the Baptist, it's stated very, very clearly that God sent John to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to tell them that the Messiah was here on earth, and even identify him in relationship to the sacrificial lamb. The lamb of God is here. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John said when he pointed to Jesus. God sent John with the message and the right to proclaim the message of the gospel of the kingdom to point out the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And God gave him a right to baptize those who would repent and believe. That Jesus, the Messiah, was there to take away their sin. But the religious leaders didn't buy it. So this is the perfect illustration. And so Jesus asked the question. He, he asked the question to trap them. They have no answer. Oh, there is an answer. The answer is... God gave John the right to baptize. But they're not interested in truth. They're interested in impact. And so Jesus put them in a corner and said, Do you believe that God gave John the authority to baptize, or is it merely something John came up with? Well, look at what they did. Verse number 5 and 6, we have the chief priest's deliberation. They got together. Verse number 5, they, they reason among themselves. Can you envision it in your mind? They confronted Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to take their turf back. Jesus puts them in a box, and they go all over, and they have a huddle. And here's the huddle. And they're talking about how they're going to answer Jesus. And they said, well, if, if we say, 
that God gave John the right to baptize, Jesus is going to look at us and say, why then didn't you get baptized? If baptism is an instruction from God, what right do you have to reject the authority of God in your life and not be baptized? Hmm. They knew that if they said John had the right to baptize, they were in trouble because their actions betrayed the reality that they did not believe that. So they said, well, maybe we'll say, well, if we, okay, if we say, okay, it's, it's just John made it up. John just made it up. There was no right to baptize from God. John made it up. And they said, you know, if we say that, we better run. Because the people around here are convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God. He had just been beheaded not much earlier, just, you know. And not far from where they were, he was beheaded by Herod Antipas at Fort Machairus, just to the east of the Dead Sea. And they're just to the west of the Dead Sea, not too far away. And the people believe that John was a prophet. If they get up there and say John was a phony, he just made all that up, they're going to stone us. And so we have their answer in verse number seven. We can't tell. Hmm. They bailed and gave a non-answer. They would not admit that they had rejected the truth of God regarding baptism. But they feared the impact of the people if they gave an honest answer. So they said, I don't know. I'm not sure. These are not honest men. These are politicians. These are people who don't care what the truth is. They care about the impact of whatever they say the truth is. And their whole discussion is, what's the impact of our answer going to be back on us? Perfect picture of the average politician, eh? Learn that when you're more concerned with how others will view you because of what you say you believe, than you are concerned about the truth you say you believe, you are just like these men. The enemies of Christ, the hypocrites, that were so concerned about what others will think of them that they dare not tell the truth. Hey, I added I added a fourth. I, I'm sorry. I added it this morning as I was reading and meditating again on this passage of Scripture. Uh, I, I kind of left it at three. Jesus asked a question. The chief priests and the scribes deliberated, and then they gave their answer. I should have added number four, and that's Jesus' response. Verse number eight, Jesus said, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I will not answer your question. You ever heard of the unpardonable sin? Jesus talked about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin was the sin of these religious leaders when they got to the point where God said, I'm done with you. It happened historically when they watched Jesus perform miracles and they said, 
It is the power of the devil in him that has given him that ability. And when they ascribed the power of God to Satan and said Jesus was demon-possessed, Jesus said, that's it. You crossed the line. Your sin cannot be pardoned. You see, the Bible talks about the amazing grace of God. Oh, it stretches and stretches and stretches. But there is a time and a place where God's patience wears to the breaking point. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, a generation would come to that point and God would say, I'm done. It happened in Kadesh Barnea. I'm done. Every one of you above the age of 20, you will die in the wilderness. I'm done. Your children will inherit the promised land. We even read about it at the end of the New Testament. First John chapter 5. The Bible says there is a sin unto death. I'm not suggesting that you pray for a person who's committed the sin unto death. There is a sin not unto death and there's a sin unto death. There is a time in people's lives where if they push the grace of God too far, God will say, that's it. I'm done. And that's what was happening here, had happened here with these religious leaders. He was done with them. That's a scary thought. I wonder how many in America have crossed that line. I wonder how many in America have so pushed the limits of God's patience and love and forgiveness that they have stepped beyond a line that there is no reversal for. In the language of 1 John, they committed a sin unto death. And God says, I'm done. It's a scary thought for America. Let me draw some conclusions. What are the takeaways? What are the conclusions? You know, the conclusions, some questions. Do you recognize Jesus has the right to tell you what to do? That's a powerful lesson in this passage for saved and unsaved alike. Do you recognize that Jesus has the right to tell you what to do? He has the right. Number two, do you embrace Jesus' views? Well, if Jesus has the right, if Jesus says something, does that settle it? If he says it's right, that it's right. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong. No matter how much I can twist it around into a pretzel, do, do I believe Jesus has the right to determine right from wrong? America no longer believes that. Unsaved people we witness to might be at a place in their life where they at best question whether Jesus has the right. And some may be to the point where they don't believe Jesus has the right. Do you believe that Jesus has the right? Do you believe that he that because he has the right, whatever he says is true? And third, are you more afraid of what people think of you? Or what truth is? Because the guys on the platform. The temple platform. They were more concerned with what people think about them. than they were concerned about what the truth was. Here's a final issue. One final issue. I said that this wasn't about baptism. Jesus chose baptism not to teach about the meaning and purpose of baptism, but he used baptism to be able to illustrate this thing of authority. But that requires that I at least recognize that that when Jesus mentioned baptism, 
uh, to these people, uh, it becomes very clear. Baptism came from God. Baptism was designed by God. And he has the right to tell people when people get saved to follow the Lord in baptism. It's the command of God to be baptized following one's repentance and belief in the gospel. And when one comes to when an unsaved person comes to the point in their life where they recognize God has the right to tell me what to do. And I have rejected that and I have disobeyed him and I am in trouble. The gospel that Jesus was talking about on the platform to the people interested in hearing was the good news that he was there as the Lamb of God to take away their sin so they could have eternal life. Those who would get saved then have the responsibility of getting baptized. So baptism reflects my belief in the authority of God. We used to call baptism, some people still call it, the first step of obedience. When a person gets saved, their first step of obedience, okay, God saved you. Now the first thing he wants you to do is obey the instruction to be baptized. Now does God have the right to tell me to get baptized? Yes. So what am I going to do? It's my first opportunity to say yes to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life. Action reflects belief. If I'm unwilling to get baptized, that reflects that I don't believe Jesus has the right to tell me what to do. Because it's my first opportunity to obey. So let me just end with two notes on wisdom for parenting. You know, parents have goals for their kids. You've got goals for your kids, I know. Some people have goals for their kids. They want their kid to learn how to kick a soccer ball really well. That's their goal. Some, some have a goal. I want my kid to master algebra. And they'll hire a tutor. To teach them after school to master algebra. They got goals for their kids. Could I suggest, parents, that you have a goal for your children, each of them individually, to lead them to Christ, to lead them to salvation? You personally, in your family devotions, and in your interaction with your kids, make their personal salvation the top goal in your life. It'll take them further than a, than a Ph.D. in algebra will take them. It'll take them further than a, a slot on the top team in sports will take them. Make a goal that you want to lead them to Christ. I, I would encourage, if you have children that are young that aren't saved, I would encourage you to get the book, Your Child's Profession of Faith, from our bookstore. Tremendous help to parents who have a burden, a goal for their children, that they want to personally lead their children to Christ. They want that. They have that as a goal for their children. Here's the second goal. I would then recommend that once your children get saved, make it your goal that you are going to study the subject of baptism with your children in your home. And, and studying the doctrine of baptism that you will lead them. To recognize the right of Jesus Christ to tell them to get baptized and to submit to that amazing opportunity. We have good mentoring lessons that we can give you to use in your home to study baptism with your children. Wisdom for parents. Let those be important goals for your life. So what's this passage all about? Who's the boss? Is Jesus the boss? And if he is, the proof's in the pudding. 
What you do shows whether he really is the one with authority.